the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Colorado Issues. I'm your host, David Van Zetter. April 20th, 1999, the quiet Denver day was shattered with news of a shooting at Columbine High School. That day, everything changed. And some say, sadly, nothing has changed. Well, nobody I can think of has a better understanding of that than my guest, Mr. Frank DeAngelis, who, of course, was the school principal at Columbine on that day. Frank, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. Since Columbine... There have been 25 fatal school shootings in the U.S., culminating with Parkland, Florida, just a month ago. And for some reason, Parkland and its students have fought back. Nationwide walkouts, marches. Why this one? Why not Sandy Hook or or others as catalysts? David, that's a great question, and I know I've been asked that several times the past month. Why didn't Columbine students do this? But back when Columbine happened, a lot of people felt that that was the first school shooting. Well, there's been school shootings since the 1700s, but I think the Columbine was the one in which the media really got involved. And I've had more people tell me that the media brought the Columbine tragedy into the living rooms, and we didn't know what to do. I mean, we were just reacting. Um, you know, previously there had been some shootings recently in Pearl, Mississippi, and Jonesboro, and uh, Springfield, but it was all new to us. And I think what is happening over the years is the dialogue after each school shooting is the very same dialogue that is taking place by the politicians. And I think these kids finally said, you're, you're telling us whether it be after Columbine, Sandy Hook, Virginia Tech, that we're going to make changes and nothing changes. And I think it's, you're saying it's about time you listen to us. And so I'm proud of these kids. Do you think that they're uh, going to have some some serious effect? It seems like they already have, but I mean, well, the thing that they're doing is they're keeping the story alive. I mean, we're talking a month, uh, a little over a month since the shootings happened, and they're still in the uh, main media limelight. Uh, they're getting ready to march on Washington, D.C., and march on the state capitol here. So I think they are having an effect. You know, it's interesting that people forget back on January third, 23rd of this year, there was a shooting up at Marshall County High School in Bent, Kentucky, and I bet if you ask people, they don't even remember that. And But I think this one is staying alive, and I think it's because of the students' protest. It, it seems like it's, it's becoming uh, almost mundane, these, these things. How do, we, how do we keep that from happening? And that's one of my biggest concerns uh, prior to what happened here. So many times shootings occur, and the people are saying, okay, how many this time? And I think we're in a community, and I don't know if that's a coping mechanism or not, but it has to change. You know, they, they can't continue to happen. And we need to get the politicians on both sides of the aisle to cross over and at least listen to each other to see if we can change some of the laws that are bad, been ineffective. Let's talk about the political side of this. So, I mean, this country seems clearly polarized. And uh, this is just one more issue where it seems like there's just gridlock. How do we break through that? Well, I think the most important thing, and I know there are people out there that believe very strongly that if we have tougher gun laws, then school shootings are going to stop. And I struggle with that being the only cure-all or solve-all because that's one piece of the puzzle. And I think in addition to tougher gun laws, we have to look at 
you know, some of the loopholes, some of the things that fell through the crack in Parkland, Florida. I think, you know, there's mental health issues. I think there's issues of having armed guards in schools. These are all pieces of the puzzle. But I think when politicians get out there and state that if we have tougher gun laws, there will never be another school shooting, I think that's offering false hope to people. And so what I mean, both sides need to get together, and they're both passionate, whether they're pro-gun, anti-gun, pro-Second Amendment, against Second Amendment, that they need to come together and look at what's in the best interest because we're continuing to lose kids. I recall the father of one of the victims in Parkland pleading with President Trump to put aside the gun control issues and just focus on protecting the schools. It was a very emotional scene, as you can imagine, but it's kind of hard to argue. I mean, how do we protect our students here in the now and not rely on legislation, which, you know, could take years. Well, you know, and one of the things I am a very strong proponent in of this, having school resource officers in buildings. Uh, at Columbine High School, there's two school resource officers. There's Jefferson County Sheriff's through so many of the metropolitan areas. There's school resource officers that are there on campus. And, you know, one of the things that we have to look at also, and I just think back to Columbine, because after Columbine happened, I felt we were probably one of the safest schools in the world because we had so much uh, protection and so much support. But some kids came up to me and they said, Mr. D., this is no longer like a school. This is like a fortress or a military camp. And I'm scared walking in here seeing all these armed guards. It constantly reminds me of what happened. So it's it's having these conversations, these common sense conversations. How do we keep the kids safe at the same time making it? Um, where kids want to go to school each day. You know, I've heard that argument, you know, and as a parent, and actually, you know, I don't know if you I lived in Israel for seven years, and so I, I saw a different side right. of this coin where, you know, it, it wasn't a, a PC issue. It was kids' safety first. And so you know, the argument that I had with somebody recently was, well, you know, we don't want to make the school look like a prison or a fortress. And my answer to them was we don't want to make it look like a graveyard either. And that's a very valid point. And, and I think there's steps that we could take to do both, you know. And I really believe, you know, in Jeff, uh, a prime example is over at Arapaho High School where there was a school resource officer engaging with the shooter. Unfortunately, Claire Davis lost her life on that day back in 2013, but he was engaged immediately. The protocols have changed since Columbine. If we think back to April 20th, 1999, the protocol was to surround the perimeter and there were actually there was a our school resource officer was exchanging gunfire with the two killers and there were other first responders coming and they had to wait outside until the SWAT team got there well since that time now first arriving officers they're sending in single officers or two or three officers to engage with the shooter immediately and i think that's saving lives who's taking the point on these strategies nationwide i mean it seems like there's variances is that effective well, I think there are certain voices, you know, that depending on who is representing the cause. I think there are educators. Uh, I, I think the big debate right now is whether or not to arm teachers. You know, and if you talk to a lot of educators, they're stating, you know, I didn't sign up to be a, a teacher to carry and conceal. And then you have the NRA and others that are strong proponents saying let's arm teachers. And I think there has to be a balance, you know, programs that can work. And, and I think what we have to look at is one size does not fit all. I look at rural communities where they may not have a responding officer for 35, 40 minutes, then they better have some a teacher or, you know, ex-military uh, on campus that can stop the kids. I think if we can take a piece from what they did with uh, after 
and arming guards. They don't know on the plane who's there, but these are people that have been trained, ex-military, ex-police. And if if they are looking to arm, arm teachers, I think it has to be more than let's just give teachers a weapon. I mean, there was just recently an incident where there was a teacher that was carrying a gun, and it went off accidentally and injured a student. And, you know, when I look at even myself uh, that day when I confronted the gunman, even if I was carrying that day, I could go and be trained, I could go to target practice, but having the ability to shoot one of my students, because when I walked in the school that, or when I ran down towards the girls to save them, I saw this gunman coming towards me. He was one of my students. I don't know if I had the mental ability to shoot one of my kids. And unfortunately, I don't know directly what would have happened if I would have had a gun. I probably would have tried to reason with the kid saying there has to be a better way. You know, put the gun down. Let's talk about that. Well, if that was the case and I got shot, I just endangered the 30 students. And so I think it's more than just saying armed teachers and the school shootings are going to stop. You know, my wife is a 25-year-plus veteran of, of, of public school teaching, and I just can't even imagine, you know, she's that squishy, hug the kids, love the kids right. kind of person. She's not going to carry a weapon. And, and you know, I, I believe, you know, let teachers teach and let the security secure. Right. You know, but at the same time, you know, looking at one of the schools here in uh, in uh, Cherry Creek where my daughter went to Eagle Crest, it's an enormous campus, just huge. And so two SRO officers are not going to be sufficient in that case. At the same time, you know, again, do you want to arm teachers? I mean, we just, like you said, we've had incidents. What's what's the answer? I mean, what's the budgetary side of that, too? I mean, it's Well, a, you know, I think that's a key point, and, and you're exactly right. I think in Parkland, Florida, the school is probably even a little bit larger than uh, Eagle Crest. 3,200 students, well, you have one or two SROs, and you have a building that's two or three floors and a, a building that wasn't directly connected. How do you keep people uh, completely there. And, you know, with this discussion taking place, this is a first time, and it's been discussed after every incident, but I think there are some people, even in Florida, that because of financial restraints that they don't have the police officers to even have SROs, do they train some teachers? But there has to be more than, you know, the training. Who are are going to be the teachers that are going to do this? You know, it'd be interesting to talk to the police forces to see how they um, feel that that would work. I think back to an incident just recently in Thornton, Colorado. It was a Walmart, and there was a gunman in there, and there were people that were carrying concealed. All of a sudden, they all had their weapons out. The police walk in, and they're not sure who the shooter is and who the good guy is. And I, I would imagine, and it would be interesting to talk to a police officer if he or she walked into a school, and all of a sudden they see three or four adults with guns, what are they going to do? Yeah, it's like their course of uh, right. shoot, don't shoot situation right. right live in front of them. Let's take a, a segue to to the side here, and, and we're talking about reacting to school shootings, but let's look at the prevention side of this. Each year in the U.S., uh, we're talking about thousands of teenagers are committing suicide. Suicide is the, the third leading cause of death for 15 to 24-year-olds and the sixth leading cause of death for 5 to 14-year-olds. Let me repeat that. Five years old. Kids are committing suicide at five years old to 14 years old. Colorado is fifth in the nation with 1,168 suicides last year. It's an epidemic. I mean, many of these, many of these cases already tragic enough have the potential to turn into a mass shooting situation. So what's going on out there? Well, my own belief is I think social media is playing a big part of this. Um, when I think back to Columbine 19 years ago, I think uh, the involvement of social media, and if my memory serves it correctly, they had MySpace, 
Well, since that time, you know, FaceTime, and that oh, FaceTime is really for old people, but all the means of whether it be Snapchat, Instagram, and I really believe that cyberbullying is a major contributor to some of the things that are going on. I know my last few years at Columbine, some of the issues we were dealing with is cyberbullying. And a lot of times, you know, back in the day, and I grew up in the 70s, you know, someone passed a note, and that was the extent of it now. But if someone posts something on Facebook or on Instagram or some of these other media outlets, these young kids feel their lives are ruined. And I think that has a major impact. And and I think a lot of times these kids are reaching out, and if they post something and all of a sudden it's not liked or there's disparaging remarks. I mean, even for adults with the Twitter account, and we, we look at some of the tweets that are out there and people – can hide behind their phones and say whatever they want, and that's what's happening to these kids. And I think that has a, a big piece of it. And so I think one of the things we can underestimate is when many of these schools are talking about cutting counselors, cutting some of the mental health programs, I think we have to take a look at that also. In, in that scope, what can the parents do to get involved? I mean, you know, we're, I'm a very active and involved parent, and I knew what was going on for the most part. But even I had some surprises with my, my kids. So where's that that tipping point where you're being too intrusive, but you also need to keep an eye on what's going on with your kids. Well, in one of the things, when I used to meet with the parents of incoming freshman students, a lot of times they feel that's a rite of passage and they need to back off a little bit, but they still need to be the parents. And I think that's important. And when parents tell me, you know, it's my child's First Amendment right, uh, that they're entitled to privacy, I can't go in their room, and I struggle with that as a parent. When I had a parent tell me I'm concerned my son is delving into alcohol and drugs and some other things, and I said, have you been in the room? No, I can't. I said, why? Because he has a padlock on it. To me, as a parent, that's a red flag. And I said, if it was me, that door would be coming off the hinges. And it's not that you're, do, you're, you're being a good parent. And it's unfortunate. There was a situation up in, I think, Frederick, Maryland, where a father – went into his daughter's room. She was an 18-year-old, an honor student up there. She was planning another Columbine, and she had the materials to make bombs. She had weapons. The father turned his daughter in, and he got chastised by the community saying, how could you turn your kid in? And I applauded the father saying he saved her life and who knows how many others. And so it was real interesting. Towards the end of my career, I actually had parents call me up, and not all, but saying, Frank, can you tell my daughter she can't wear that to school? And I said, hold on, you're the parent. If you don't want your daughter, no, you don't understand, Frank. She may not like me. And at times, as parents, we need to be that person that needs to be that support in their system, but also have some rules. And I think kids are crying out for rules, and I'm not sure if they have them right. Yeah, yeah kids want boundaries. Sometimes it takes tough love, but exactly. at the end of the day, it's still love. That's exactly. Have we as a society, and even more concerning, have the youth of our society become desensitized to violence? It worries me a little bit. Uh, I have a granddaughter Mia uh, she's four and a half years old and my wife and I talk about this all the time and she is just the love of our lives but I know even watching some of the cartoons and I think back to growing up now I'm dating myself back in the 60s but you know quite different now everything is so realistic and I, I wonder if they're being desensitized uh, some of the games that some of these video games that these kids are playing are very similar to what they use to train the military and police officers that desensitize them, you know, for things. So I think I think that does have an impact, but it's one piece to the puzzle. And I think where we are as a society right now, there are people that feel that 
for example, if we eliminate, back in the day, it was Marilyn Manson music. They really felt because the two killers from Columbine listened to Marilyn Manson music, they're going to become mass murderers, or if they played the game of Doom, they were going to be. But there's millions of kids that listen to Marilyn Manson. There's millions of kids that play. The, why didn't they turn into mass? There's, that's one piece of it. There's other things that contributed to them becoming these mass shooters, and I think people want that answer, saying, well, if we outlaw, if we have tougher gun laws, then all school violence is going and we can't guarantee that. The two killers at Columbine purchased a gun legally through a loophole at the Tanner Gun Show, but they also purchased guns illegally that they used. Now, how do you stop our society from selling these guns? Because I really believe there are people that are intent on killing are going to find a way to get the weapons. Yeah, well, I think probably to, to stop those kinds of illegal sales, I think the penalty has to be so severe that it's just not worth it for somebody to do that. Hopefully that deterrent might, might kick in. I want to go back to the, the causation and you were talking about bullying earlier. Isn't it a slippery slope? You know, when now all of a sudden we're kids have been bullying for forever. I mean, I went through school. I was bullied you know, some. We don't want to make these kids bl- and blame the victim because if somebody comes back to shoot their bully, that bully is now the victim. So do we want to take the onus off of the shooter. Let's talk about that. That is one of my things that I am on a crusade about because the way the media portrayed the Columbine situation is that the two killers were picked on, they were at risk, out of, out of, out of touch, bullied. And that was the furthest thing from the troop. And pe- people are going to say, and I got criticized, saying, well, you're just defending your school. And, and I'm not here to say that Columbine was perfect. We had bullying going on, but not to the extent that the media played it out. And, and the reason I can say that emphatically is the fact that I watched the basement tapes for over three and a half hours that these two killers had planned what they were going to do for over a year. And not in any point in those videos that they mentioned anything about bullying. Even Klebold's mother in her book said there was nothing in his journal entries that talked about bullying. But yet there are still people that state the reason those two did what they did is because they were bullied. Now, where that, that creates a problem for me is there are people out there that look to these two killers from Columbine as cult heroes. And they're saying even though what they did was awful, but they were defending people just like me who's being marginalized, and it gives them reason. And if you look at the killer from Sandy Hook, he made reference to the two from Columbine. The guy from um, Virginia Tech made mention. And these what worries me is these there are kids that weren't even born when Columbine occurred, and they're still making reference to Columbine, and they're using Columbine and the two shooters as motivation to carry out some of the things they want to do. They want to carry out another Columbine. We had the two girls over at Thunder Ridge High School a couple of years ago that said we want to carry out another Columbine attack. And so I think with the media, what they set forth many years ago, it's still playing out now. And you know you touched on this, and there were some some obvious warning signs. And so now, very prominent in the news is how the FBI blew these obviously clear signals that this kid was planning something, was disturbed. How do we shut that door? How do we put that that uh, safety net in place to make sure that doesn't get missed? Well, and and that's one of the things that I think there has been improvement since Columbine. And again, not to defend what we did or didn't do, but. I really felt 19 years ago we were acting as separate entities. You know, the kids wrote a journal entry that a teacher was concerned as a principal, as the teacher, as a counselor. We met with the parents and we dealt with it. What we were unaware is there was a hit list turned into the police department. That information was not shared with the schools. And there was, um, they were 
practicing or they were exploding pipe bombs at the pizzeria place that that was not shared with us. Well, all of a sudden, if we would have been communicating and put all those pieces to the puzzle on the table, you're saying, oh, my gosh, there's a lot of red flags. I think what we saw in Florida, those pieces were there when the FBI said we missed it. We had the guy that came forward that saw these pictures on um, social media that brought it to the attention and they didn't follow through. And so I think that's important that we do listen. And I think the thing that we can't underestimate is the power of the kids that so many times these kids know what's going on and they have to have the resources to report what is happening, you know, and if they see something. And, and you know, the thing that we can't lose sight of is there have been, as you mentioned, 25 school shootings. But the thing we can't lose sight is how many have been stopped because of things we have in place, because it's not reported on the front page. School shooting stopped in, you know, Dallas or wherever. It's we back page. Info. Yeah, it's back page. And so, I mean, not to diminish the lives that have been lost, but there are some things that we have done that kids have reported things that they've reported. You know, I look at Columbine, and you ask, what can kids do? Probably my last few years, and there's a program in Colorado called Safe to Tell, and it's run through the Attorney General's office. And probably there were five or six cases each year at Columbine that a kid saw something on social media. They reported to the police, and they did a welfare check in the middle of the night and probably saved five or six lives because of that. So I think it's just making people aware of their surroundings. And what worries me is when these kids are making these threats and they're saying, well, we're just joking around. And I think there has to be what you stated earlier. There has to be some penalty. If it's, if I wa- or you or I walked into the airport right now and said we're carrying a bomb, we're, can't make that we joke. can't make that joke. That's, you know, back yep. in the day, yelling fire in a movie theater. Well, I think they need to take these kids that are making these threats and really make, I mean, they need to say, you can no longer say this is joking. This is a serious crime. This is an indulgent question, Mike. I'm curious. You spoke with President Clinton. Yes. Can you share some of that conversation with us? You know, President Clinton, whether you agree with him politically and things, the one thing that I can say about him is he was so supportive of the Columbine community. And the first time I met President Clinton, it was uh, exactly a month after the tragedy. It was May 20th, and he came in to... Denver, Colorado, and we met over at Dakota Ridge High School, and he was with the First Lady at that point. And I got an opportunity to sit down with him and the families who had just lost their children in a private meeting. And I saw the compassion that he showed for those families, and he was going to do everything in his power and before to help them. And before he left, he said, Frank, I'm just not going to walk away from this. I'm going to help Columbine heal. And here's a guy, and he didn't do it for the publicity. Here's a guy who called me the first day back at school to check in with me to see how things were going. Here's a guy who came back several times to Colorado to raise money to help build the permit memorial and help with fundraising for the library. So I saw a side, and it wasn't that he was doing it for recognition. They didn't even know he made those phone calls. But I saw a side that he really helped Columbine as far as healing and building and things of that nature. At at Columbine today, and I know that you you still have an active role there, coming out of that school. 
What's the climate like with the kids today? It's real interesting. I mean, they seem to have an extra burden because they, they're they just really students do. at Columbine. You know, and it's really interesting uh, when I was principal and even now, and I stay actively involved, and I'm so fortunate the principal, Scott Christie, principal right now, allows me to stay connected with Columbine, and I get invited back, and the staff and the students welcome me back. But one of the things that the kids used to tell me back then, and they're even saying now, they said, Mr. D, when you go out and talk to people around the country and up in Canada and even some international speaking, can you tell them that we're not bad kids and we're not a bad school? And unfortunately, you know, Columbine is always going to be labeled. And I've had kids tell me when they're out and they tell them they go to Columbine, oh, that's the place where they shoot kids and kids, you know, and this type of thing. And, and they're, it's the legacy. And I think one of the things that they're trying to do is change that legacy. And we had a mantra back at the one-year anniversary, a time to remember. We're going to remember the 13 who so tragically lost their life. But Columbine also represents a time to hope. And I think that's what these students are doing, and that's why they're actively involved with some of the actions that are taking place now. You didn't sign on for this role, but but you've taken the role of the person to go to when these tragedies strike. I imagine that's a big burden to carry. In the face of, of such horrors, how do you stay positive? There's a couple of things, and I share this when I do some when I do my presentations. And someone may not go through a Columbine tragedy, but someone's going to go through some difficult times in their life, and you need to find that support system. Now, for me, and it's not for everyone, I'm not trying to convert or prosthesize anyone. It was my faith. And, you know, I was a cradle Catholic, and it was two days after the tragedy that I went down to my parish, uh, St. Francis Cabrini in Littleton, Colorado, and a, a spiritual leader for me and a dear, dear friend was Father Ken Leone. And he called me up to the altar, and there were students from Columbine that were part of the youth group, and they extended their hands to pray for me. But more importantly, what he said, he whispered in my ear, he said, Frank, that day you should have died, and you were spared for a reason. I mean, you encountered the gunman. Now you need to rebuild that community. And he said, it's going to be a tough journey, but you got to live by faith and not by sight. And he said, you're going to have that help. That worked for me. It may not work for everyone else, but the second piece, and I think a lot of times in our society, it's a, it's a stigmatism, the mental health piece. I had a friend of mine. My mom actually worked for him. He was John Fisher, and he was a Vietnam veteran. And he called me the day after, and he said, you can't help yourself. If you don't help yourself, you can't help others. So I've gotten counseling. I'm still in counseling. After the shootings in Florida, I went and visited my counselor just to get that support. I need to be able to help others. Frank DeAngelis, I can't thank you enough for stopping in today and taking the time to visit with us. My wish for you is that you have don't have to help anybody else get through these yeah. crises. And that, that was the last one at Parkland. And we're going to work towards that goal. So for Colorado Issues, I'm David Venzetter. Thank you. Thank you.